Well, good morning. My name is Ron, and I'm one of the elders here, and I have the privilege of continuing our study in 1 Corinthians. I wanted to start off with some political talk. You haven't had enough of that yet, have you? I want to talk about my favorite president of all time, number 26. Do you know who that is? I heard Teddy Roosevelt somewhere. Uh, oh, wait, I said it. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt, my favorite president. And I like him because he really encapsulates the American spirit best. Just this tough, tough guy. Um, he's probably the strongest, the most brave. He does all these courageous things. He leaves office and ends up, I mean, while he's in office, he leaves the White House and ends up disappearing for a month because he went hunting. This is the American spirit. I, I would put him up against any other president in a, in a fight, right? He would beat up any president, Biden or Trump. You pick. He, uh, Teddy Roosevelt will come out victorious. After he left office in 2009, he went on a speaking circuit. He still was very successful as a speaker. And he gave a speech called Citizens, a Citizenship in a Republic. And this is a speech, an excerpt of this you know very well. Uh, in this speech, he tells us that praise should go to the one, to the man who's actually in the battle. Not the critic, but the person in the battle it's, uh, itself. Here's the quote that you know, I'm sure of it. Teddy Roosevelt tells us this, it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, but comes, and who comes up short again and again because there is no effort without erring and shortcoming, who spends himself in a worthy cause who at the best knows the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly. So that this place shall never be, though, shall, so this, his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory or, nor defeat. Have you heard that before? Has anyone heard this quote? Famous, famous quote. Glory and honor, Roosevelt tells us, should go to those who spend themselves in a worthy cause, to dare greatly. What an image. The, the person who deserves the honor is not the one in the stands or in the sidelines watching the game. It's the man who's covered in dust and sweat and blood in the arena. This uh, text now, the speech is now called, if you, if you ever look it up, it's called the man in the arena, not the citizenship in the republic, just because that image is such a powerful image about the man in the arena deserves our attention better than us critics looking in and being able to criticize. Now, you can see why athletes and coaches memorize this or give this as their pep talk in the locker room, because it's a great image of leave everything on the field mentality. Cadillac used it as one of their commercials. Uh, I'm not sure the connection, but uh, even worse than that, Miley Cyrus has a tattoo of this on her arm. That's definitely worse uh, than Cadillac. I don't know why, but uh, the man in the arena, Teddy Roosevelt tells us, he gives all of this for a greater purpose of winning, and winning is what we can be impressed. Even when he loses, we can still be more impressed because he is winning, or at least he's striving to win. And we're going to see this same image in our text today, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 27. Rather than the man in the arena speech, this sermon is called living as a Christian in the arena. 
So we're living as a Christian in the arena. Paul is going to invite us to get off of the sidelines and get bloodied in this arena. We fight valiantly for a future triumph. And this is what we're going to see today in our text. While this is all exciting about the man in the arena, we often identify not so much with the athletes, but with those on the sidelines, especially when it comes to evangelism or telling people about Jesus. We like to be on the sidelines, hoping if we live a good life sitting in the sidelines, people will come to us. They'll notice what a great Christian I am and come to me. But being in the arena, it means being uncomfortable, open to ridicule. It costs time. Being a critic on the sidelines is pretty easy. I'm comfortable. I have my little padded seat. I can ridicule, which is always fun. And I have a lot of me time. And so sitting on the sidelines and sitting in the arena is, is a uh, difference that we see here. Today's sermon comes in a broader sermon series called Gospel Formed, Becoming Who We Are, a United Family in a Fractured City. This is uh, sermon number nine or ten, perhaps. And the series of 1 Corinthians reminds us that the church exists to display the beauty of the gospel to a broken world and broken people in the world. The Apostle Paul's aim in 1 Corinthians was to anchor them in the gospel and point them back to Jesus so that they can become who God says that they are and what they, who they were meant to be, which is a united family in a broken city. This letter holds true for the Corinthians as it does for our community today. Now, last week, John focused on his main idea, which was, we become who we are when your flourishing in Jesus matters more than my personal freedoms. And this was dealing with meat sacrificed to idols. And so the idea is that I have some preferences, but I'm going to give them up to meet your preference as a fellow believer and for the fellow Christians. This week, we're going to focus Paul's, we're going to see Paul's direction switch to the unbeliever or the person who's not connected to church, those outside the faith. And he's also going to show us something about rewards, how our rewards are coming. And we need to fight in the arena, not only for the non-Christian, but we need to fight in the arena for heavenly rewards as well. So my main idea that we'll look at in the sermon is this. We become who we are as we practice self-sacrifice for the salvation of others, and we practice self-control in order to obtain future heavenly rewards. This, our text, our short text, is going to give us these two areas that we'll focus on. So join me in prayer to those, those ends. Father God, we ask you to be here with us today, Lord. Spirit, quicken our hearts, Lord. Point us to Jesus in everything we look at in the text and everything that we hear and everything that I speak. May all of it point to you in glorifying your son. Amen. Point number one, we give up our freedoms in order to bring people to Christ. We give up our freedoms in order to bring people to Christ. I'm going to start off way back in 1995. Most of you were in your early 20s, right? Uh, 1985 is when I became a Christian. Um, and so it, when I became a Christian, the guy who led me to Christ not only told me about Jesus, and I got a New Testament Bible, but I also got a duffel bag full of Christian rock tapes. So it, it was nice. New Testament, Petra. And so both things came to me. And, and this bag of, of, of uh, Christian music was Petra, Amy Grant, Michael W. Smith. Any of these sound familiar? White Hart, Russ Taff. Oh, I love these. I just want to listen to them right now again. Uh, 
But this was my biblical education for the first two years, I think, of my Christianity, is I just listen to these tapes, and I can still, I, I think I know more lyrics than Bible verses, but that's, a, that's my problem, not yours. Uh, and so this was my training. Well, one time at high school, in one of the classes, I told someone that I was a Christian, and she said, have you heard of this band called Striper? Striper, no. They're a Christian heavy metal band. I saw them. They were on Today's Show or Good Morning America or something. And I looked at them, and I was like, Striper. <laughs> and so that day, I'm not exaggerating, that day I heard about it. On the way home from school, I passed a record store, and I bought Soldiers Under Command record. I'm not going to ask you if you've heard of it, because I know you have, and you're just afraid to admit it. Uh, <laughs> so Soldiers Under Command, uh, I, had, I, I was obsessed with Striper at the end of high school. I had this exact shirt that I would wear all the time, and I even wore it, another story, when I joined the military, I wore this on the first day of basic training, getting off. That did not go well, and that's a story for another time. Um, I think I was being persecuted. But during, during this time, when we're, I'm finding this Christian heavy metal, I'm new to the faith, I start to hear some pushback from some Christians who were in my family, uh, distant family, and they were saying, you can't be a Christian and look like that. Christians don't play heavy metal music, that's the devil's music. And in the mid 80s, late 80s, there was this battle of the influence of rock music. And th there was even outside of the church, congressional hearings of is rock bad for kids? And this is where the, the rating system came from with Tipper Gore, Al Gore's wife led this uh, hearing. And so the idea is, is, can a Christian listen to Christian heavy metal music and can that glorify God? And my answer was always, because I loved Striper, I mean, look at that hair. <laughs> if, I, if, if, if only if. Uh, <laughs> can we have Christian heavy metal music glorify God? And my proof text that I would always use, even though I didn't know much about the Bible, the proof text I would always use is, uh, Paul says, I've become all things to all people so that some may be saved. That was my text. And I didn't know if that was true or not, but it sounded good, at least. Well, We'll remove Striper now and put up the Bible. Uh, and a little, well, hold on, before I leave Striper, I can't leave them quick, uh, so quickly, but last year, Striper, they're still playing and putting their records. Uh, they came to Tokyo, and you can imagine, these are old guys now. They came to Tokyo. Hudson and I flew to Tokyo, uh, and I sat in the back with my nine-year-old son on my shoulders listening to Striper. <laughs> I mean, really, the 15-year-old me was smiling. Uh, it, from, it, it bridges the gap. Anyway, back to the Bible. Uh, let's look at the first half here. We give up our freedom in order to bring pre people to Christ. Let me reread some of this again here. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I may win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. In chapter 8, Paul discusses the need to provide room for others' conscience. In the first part of chapter 9, which we're not looking at today, Paul brings up the rights that he has 
as an apostle, in this case, financial support. As a church planner and an apostle, Paul is saying, I have the right to ask for money because this is my full-time job, but I'm not going to do that for the sake of the gospel for some reasons that he had. I could eat meat sacrificed to idols, but I'm not going, I'll never eat meat again if that means that someone can grow in Christ. Well, here he shifts his, his uh, movement here to keep the same logic. I'm gonna give up some of my rights that I feel comfortable in order to share the gospel so that some may be saved. Paul paradoxically uses his freedom to become a slave. It's a great antithesis here. I am so free to do this, I am not going to do it, and I'm gonna put myself as a servant to you so that the greater purpose, the winning, is that I may save some. He has the right to do what he wants. He has the right to preach the way he wants to preach, the way that God has gifted him. But he's not under the law of man. He's not under any kind of Jewish law. But he says, I am willing to constrain and restrain anything that I feel comfortable in order to make the bridge for you to hear the gospel. I want to make a winsome case for Jesus. What do I need to get there? How do I do that? The old-fashioned word for evangelism, you may have read this, is called soul winning. Have you heard that before? You know, people would even use it almost as a a verb. I'm going out soul winning. Well, that's a noun actually, but I'm going, okay, forget the verb part. I'm going out soul winning. And so people would say that. I don't really hear that anymore unless you're older than me. Uh, But it's easier to stay with what we know when it comes to telling people about Jesus. We like our small groups, right? We like people who look like us and sound like us and think like us and have the same culture as us. That is really easy to do. Well, Paul does otherwise. Paul was giving away his favorite way to communicate the gospel, whatever that that way is. He gives it away to communicate Christ to win souls. So in that sense, when he was a Jew, he acted kosher. He's not gonna let his eating Uh, choices influence anybody or block anybody from hearing about Jesus. When he's a Gentile, he eats non-kosher. When he's with football fans, he talks football. When he's with heavy metal aficionados, striper. Metallica, maybe, probably better. Uh, When English teachers, perhaps he talks books. He uses that to be the conduit to the gospel. When he talks with a Marine, he uses a lot of acronyms. When he's talking to a Democrat, he thinks and acts like a Democrat. When he talks to a conservative, he talks and thinks like a conservative. He doesn't want anything to get in the way. If Paul were to evangelize downtown Portland, Oregon right now, he would take his MAGA hat off, regardless of what he thought about um, the hat. Anything that's going to get in the way, according to Paul, he is going to put to the side in order for the gospel to be uh, proclaimed. He was a chameleon in this way, is that on one, one sense, he's talking as the most learned Jewish scholar. On the other hand, in Acts 17, he's at Mars Hill using all of the Greek customs in order to point people to Jesus. He becomes chameleon-like in wherever he is that he's changing his method. And the reason why he changed his method in all of these, Jews, Gentiles, football, conservative, none of it matters to God. God doesn't care about any of that stuff compared to the greatness of Jesus Christ. Because of that, God, uh, Paul could put aside what he liked. That wasn't important, but he became a bridge now. He wanted to be a bridge between man and hearing the gospel. Paul is in the arena 
adapting to whatever he needs to do to fight to win. So if his person in the arena with him is someone carrying a tennis racket, he's going to use tennis. If he's carrying a sword ready to attack him, he's going to use a sword. If he's carrying, I I can't even think of anything, a book, he's going to pull out a book. Uh, The idea is that he wants to fight to win, and what does it take? Whatever works is what Paul is going to use to win souls. I teach AP English at school, and on the first or second day, every single year, I talk about Aristotle's rhetorical triangle. And Aristotle's rhetorical triangle says this, when we argue and when we try to convince somebody of something, we use one of three appeals. We use a logical appeal, an emotional appeal, or we use an appeal to the speaker's credibility. One of those. And I'll ask kids this, which one is the best, most effective one? What is it? Whichever one works, there is no right answer. So for teenagers, I would say, think about when you want to stay out late. You ask your mom, your appeal to your mother is going to be different than your father. You want a, you want a new iPhone. For your dad, you're going to maybe talk, generally speaking, we talk about the logical sense and money and cost and hours and ease. For the mother, maybe more emotional appeal Mom, all the kids are making fun of me if I don't have this new phone. Your dad is like, I don't care. I let them make fun. Uh, and so <laughs> the, the, the purpose is in, in argument, whether it's talking about a, a theological argument or asking for a favor from a parent or a political argument, which one works? And that's the best one to use. That is Paul's mentality. And so he's going to use whatever works very uh, practically in order to make the message clear. But we don't do this, though. Right? We get comfortable in our Christian routine and our Christian culture. Sometimes our, our cultural beliefs mandate where we go, or I don't go to bars. I don't want to go with bar, to bars with friends because I don't want to be seen. I don't want to go to a movie theater and come out of a movie theater because, as John told us last time, someone may see you and think you're going to a, a bad movie. So all of this, we avoid places because we're comfortable because of our cultural beliefs. But sometimes those avoidance And my latching on to here's the way I proclaim Christ can get in the way. Some well-meaning evangelists, sometimes they even have a script. You've seen some of these, and and there's nothing wrong with this uh, scripting necessarily. If the person says this, give this. If they give this argument, say this. And it becomes this very formulaic uh, recipe to supposedly bring people to Jesus. Back in college, I I was involved with this DC Talk thing um, with, with... they were coming to town and they met with all the youth pastors and they kept they had this step-by-step how to bring what they called pre-christians to christians and there was a step-by-step guide so dc talk if you if you know you know those guys they took us through how to turn pre-christians into christians and even at the time i was like this sounds stupid because we're, we're doing this one size fits all mentality and that is not what we're asked to do from all things to all people when I was uh, a best man at a wedding 20, 25 years ago, um, I was, it was during a time I was still in the military. I flew back from Germany to be at this great friend's wedding, and I was the best man. And at that time, I, wasn't, I was anti-alcohol, no drinking alcohol. And I gave the toast. We were in the church. We came outside. We had the reception outside, and we raised glasses with the champagne. And after it was over and everybody's here, 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 I took the champagne. I threw it in the grass hope someone sees me because I don't drink. Put it down. I waited. Hordes of people came up. Ron, why are you so different? Tell me about this Jesus. 
no, no. They're like, who is that idiot up there? You know, and I'm not saying I should have drank. That's not what I'm saying here. I did not have to make the show of it. Look at me. Look how clean, clean my life is. Do you want to hear about Jesus? No, I don't. Uh, which is the, the reaction. We are often not building that bridge as Paul is telling us to. We are the stumbling blocks. We, I am the stumbling block. The throwing the champagne now has shut up conversation. It didn't invite it in to build a conversation. People are not interested in hearing about the saving, life-changing, transformative power of Jesus because of me, because of my notions of how it ought to go. And that has no interest to them. We have no interest in connecting with an audience sometimes. We want them to hear it. We become so nestled deep in the evangelical subculture of what we ought to do and, not, and ought to avoid that we miss out any opportunity we have to be outside of these walls. We often hear, and I, I've thought of it with, with my, my champagne uh, stunt, is that we think lifestyle evangelism. I'll just live a squeaky clean life. I'll have good marriage or at least pretend to have a good marriage. I'm going to say the right things, avoid the right things. And then people will come to me and ask me, why are you so different? Tell me about this, this Jesus. That's why I threw the champagne. But you know what? No one's ever asked me that. No one has ever in any workplace ever come up to me, tell me about Jesus. I can tell the way that you don't swear. Nobody would do that. The problem with the lifestyle evangelism is that the onus then puts it on the person on the outside. They're forced to come to me to hear about Jesus. Whereas Paul's model is the opposite. I am asked to go to them. And that switch will make all the difference. We are asked to go to the world, not the world transforming to come to us. And one of the, the best examples of this is the missionary to China, Hudson Taylor. And Hudson Taylor in the mid-1800s left England and brought the gospel to inland China. And under, in his life, 18,000 or so were estimated to come into Christ. And what makes Hudson Taylor so different is that Hudson Taylor didn't adopt the same missionary practices of his day where we brought European Christianity or American Christianity. Hudson Taylor totally transformed his look. He grew braids like the Chinese. He ate Chinese. He dressed Chinese. He learned the language in order to be one of them. And because of that, Hudson Taylor is a great model for missionaries around the world today. In fact, Hudson Taylor is the namesake of my son, Hudson. Uh, we just hope that Hudson, my Hudson, takes this countercultural and brings the, the gospel to, un, um, <clears throat> to unreached people. And so this is how we ought to be. This is what Apostle Paul wanted us to be, is how can we get rid of what's comfortable? I'm sure a British 1850s gentleman is not comfortable in China. But yet he took, put aside whatever was comfortable in order for the sake of the gospel and for lost sinners to hear about Jesus. Now first, what does this not mean? Here's the objection. It's the objection I had with Striper in, in high school is that, well, all things to all people, you know, where does it end? Paul wouldn't change his message. Well, all things to all people doesn't mean it's a theological free-for-all, that we can believe whatever we want as long as we get people to believe it. It's not this... Uh, itchy ears. I tell you what you want to hear so that you can believe of some weird transformed gospel. No. Paul is talking about the methods, 
need to be changed, not the message. The message never changes. So this idea of, well, am I to be an adulterer to reach adulterers? Am I to become a heroin addict so I can reach the heroin addicts in the world? No, this objection is foolish and really flies in the face of anything Paul really says. Paul, in the letter to the Galatians, as you might remember from an earlier series, is that Paul says, but even if we are an angel from heaven, preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. So this same Paul, all things to all people, is not saying the message changes. Paul is saying the methods are changing. And if we're holding on firm to the way that we know the gospel should be preached, that's part of the problem. So that's the first objective. It's not a theological free-for-all. It's the message stays put. The methods change. The other one is that you might ask, doesn't this seem phony? Is it just somebody, whoever's in front of me, I change, and I'm like, you like you like romantic comedies? I like romantic comedies too. Let's talk about Jesus. No, that, that, just, that just feels so phony. It's like this right here, this famous meme here. Uh, Steve Buscemi, uh, how do you do, fellow kids? Uh, it's, this is, it's terrible. And I know, I work in high school, and high school, in their minds, are the coolest people on earth. And so I have these younger teachers I work with who try to be hip and cool and, you know, uh, and whatever that is. But they try to be hip and cool, and no adult is ever cool. And so it becomes so awkward when you're trying to be something that you're not in order to win people over. That is not what we're asked to do. We are asked to remove obstacles and to be sincere in loving people and serving people the way they want to be loved and served. There's nothing phony about that. There is nothing phony about sitting with a grieving couple over a miscarriage or infertility or death. And we, as we're told, to mourn with those who mourn and weep with those who weep. There is nothing phony about building that bridge so that we can sit and become one with them in order to hear about the healing salve of Jesus Christ. There is nothing phony about giving people what they need. In fact, that right there should be our truest self, not something fake, not something manufactured, but this should be who we are to the utmost being is that I want to serve you. How can I do that? We're meeting people where they are. And we see this. It's not just Paul or Hudson Taylor who does this. Jesus does this. Jesus is our model to go on the outside, to find those people, and he eats with them and speaks with them and heals them and listens to them and cares for them and loves them. He met people where they were to bring them to himself. Jesus didn't come as he could have and been in some synagogue somewhere where people would have to line up to just see him or look at him. They didn't come to him. He went to them. It's called incarnational ministry. Jesus, the word becomes flesh. That is for us too. We get to become flesh in people's lives for the good of the gospel. How are we doing that? You know, I, I've heard this line, the best ministry we can ever do is showing up. That's the best ministry. Go into someone, uh, I, I had to go to a, um, a, a student, hard time in uh, mental health a couple of times, different kids. I don't know what to say. I'm not, that, I'm not John Ransom who has all the right things to say. I don't know what to say, but I know that like me just going and showing up is probably a good first step. And Paul, all things to all people, this is what we're asked to do. And so how does it look like in our lives? How can we give up freedom for the good of others? How can you do this in your life? 
I mean, just a few things that I've, I've mentioned here. Maybe it's joining that neighborhood book club. You don't read? Too bad. Learn how to read, okay? Learn how to read so that you can have good conversations with people. Learn how to play golf. If people in your office go play golf, that's a good way to do it, it seems like. Kyle Clayclamp, I love this, he went and met with the Jewish community uh, on Friday nights to open up dialogue. So he literally became a Jew to those who were Jewish. Uh, and, well, not literally, but he, he, he did that. He followed that advice well. It could be going out with people to the bar while they are stupid. Uh, it could be that. Uh, use your discretion, of course. But, but the idea is it could be that. It could be entering into this world so that we can open up a platform uh, for discussion. And if you need a test or you need practice on how to become all things to all people, explain the gospel to a child. We do that. Parents and teachers do this all the time. I do not talk to my three children about Jesus the same way I would talk with any of us if we were over coffee as adults. You, you simplify, you use different words, you kind of come at it from a different angle, you use flanographs and puppets if you need to, whatever works so that my kids can understand this. That's what I want to do. That's the best model that we can become all things to all people. Jesus does it, that would be our model as well. Now, we can broaden this principle a little bit, not just telling people about Jesus for the first time, but we can think about serving people. And we can just, just talk about this little microcosm here at Pillar Okinawa. Imagine if we had this same idea of building a bridge to connect people to Jesus and a, a Jesus-centered community just by giving up what I want. You know what I want sometimes? I want to talk to my favorite people here on a Sunday morning. And you know who my favorite people are? You're all my favorite people, but uh, th there are some people that are more favorite than others, but uh, it, if you're laughing, it's you. Uh, so, I lost my thought. While I want to talk to people that I really have a, a relationship with and connection, I purposefully make it my aim to not talk to people I know. And so if we're good friends and I don't look at you, deal with it, uh, is that we want to use this time to give up what I want for something for the good of connecting somebody to the community. And so my favorite job in any of this stuff that we do at Pillar for the last four years is to stand out front and talk to new people. I love it because there's a look in people's eyes, you know, and, and if you were in hospitality, you know it. They kind of look because we're not a typical building. Sanctuary is off to your left. It's nothing like that. It's, you know, there's we call this the uh, liquor store, China Pete's. There's a huge boobies sign right in front of our door. This is anything but a regular church. And so you can see people's connections. And you, if you are a greeter for hospitality, you get to be that first face of pillar to connect people to somebody else. What an honor. My work there is way more important than my work right here uh, because we get to connect people who normally would not be connected. And and all of these things that we get to do as members in Pillar is that we get to connect somebody. Maybe they're going to hear about Jesus for the first time. Maybe their faith is going to be strengthened. Strengthened. Maybe they're connected because they don't have anybody else on Okinawa, and it's their first tour away from home, and we get to connect. Maybe their marriage is on the brink. Maybe they need some, some shoring up of their faith because some hard time is getting ready to crush them. We get to share in that blessings, as Paul tells us. By me giving up what I want to do to talk to somebody, I get to go and try to make this connection, and I get to share in that blessing whatever God does in their, in their lives. What an honor that is. 
And we know people here do this all the time. We see people do this all the time. And I hope you get to recognize them. I mean, one of them, uh, EJ, I, I, she was here last, last uh, service. EJ is our childhood coordinator, ministries coordinator. And EJ works tirelessly at being able to connect kids to the gospel. Not only kids, but think about what her work does. How many of you have kids in, next door right now? Raise your hand. Look at that. Keep your hands up for a second. Because of EJ, all of you can sit here without a kid kicking you in the crotch, you know? Uh, th that right there is a gift. And so EJ's work, too far? Uh, uh, e EJ's work, I'm sure she would rather sit here and talk to you, but rather she's working next door for our good. I want to highlight Tunji and Joy back here. Raise your hand, guys. It's okay, I'll put you on the spot. Did you prepare your speech? You didn't? Oh. Uh, Tunji and Joy were here about two, three weeks or so, and they came up to me and was like, we want to serve in hospitality. They're new, and they want to serve in hospitality. That shows you, especially if you're new, the need for that connection. And so now Tunji and Joy eagerly serve at greeting and connecting people well, and they get to share in the blessings for the people they get to connect. We look at lunch with people. Sutherlands aren't here, this one, but how many of you have had lunch with the Sutherlands? They're like, you know, uh, very focused on getting people, finding people, and they have 19 children, I think. Uh, and they still try to find people who are not connected, and they bring them to the banyan tree. David Sutherland bought stock in banyan tree. That's why they keep going there. But he does that in order to connect people for the good of the gospel. We see reaching out to neighbors. I happen to be in a, a great MC, the best one, I'm sorry, but... Uh, Tracy, the Poutses and the Alessis who are here, they make an intentional focus at reaching their cul-de-sac. They're both in the same cul-de-sac, and that is their mission. Last night was a bonfire with, with uh, their cul-de-sac. It's more comfortable to sit inside and watch a movie on a Saturday night. It's way less comfortable talking to strangers, but yet given up to make connections. And then these people really are my favorite people here, and that's the Pittmans. Uh, and the Pittmans just are the model of all of this, like everybody else, um, is that the Pittmans connect people better than anybody. And with, without a doubt, I can always say, you're looking for, what, what are you looking for? Zach has it. Rachel has it. Let me connect you with them. Because we know that they do good work in people's lives with their MC and with um, the men's group on every other Wednesday. Plus, Zach has coffee, too, so I mean, I, you, can't, you can't miss that. But you guys, Rachel, you, and Zach, wherever he is, but Rachel, like you guys are connecting people for the good of God's glory, and we see this again and again in people in your life, so thanks for that. These are all uncomfortable things. None of this may come naturally. You know, some of you may do things somewhat naturally, but to have people over your house, to meet people, to invite people, it doesn't come naturally, but we do it. We put aside our preferences and our comfort for the good of others, for the glory of God, and we get to be the fellow participant in those blessings. We can be part of something so much bigger than what Sunday morning looks like. I'm uncomfortable talking to new people. Get over it. Be done. It is uncomfortable. So still do it. People need you. People need that connection. And this self-sacrifice that this whole point is about is not a woe is me-ism. I'm going to self-sacrifice for the good of Jesus. I guess I'll talk to you. 
Can you imagine if that was the sentiment? This is a rejoicing because we are in the arena fighting for a better goal of connecting people to Christ. There, it doesn't get any more rejoicing than this. Well, in this point in the text, Paul transitions in verse 27 to 24 to 27. It's still under the topic of giving up our preferences for the good of a larger goal to fight. And so our point, our second and only other point is this. We give up our freedom to receive heavenly rewards. We give up our freedom to receive heavenly awards. Paul seems to connect with this a little bit with soul winning, but it seems like there might be something more than just soul winning that we get some of these rewards. So here we go. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Seems like a jump, moving from all things to all people to running and boxing and prizes. But with both, along with the eating of meat, they all fall together to say, are we fighting for the prize? Are we fighting for something bigger? Here Paul uses his favorite metaphor for the Christian life, and it's the athletics, to be the athlete. And Paul, being the good all things to all people, he uses athletics to talk to the Corinthians. Now, the Corinthians would undoubtedly know about competition. The Isthmian Games were second only to um, the Olympics, were held in Corinth. And everybody, from the time they were little kids, boys and girls both, were trained to run and box and wrestle. You think our culture is sports-obsessed? Corinth has us beat. Now, I'm going to lecture, perhaps, what could be the most healthy and exercise-obsessed part of our country in their 20s and 30s, I'm going to lecture you right now about training, okay? So this is going to be good. I'm a little underqualified. Uh, but Paul does focus in on this. Paul moves from giving up our freedom to having self-control in how we train in exercise. And so the, the first area that I just want to look at with the verse is every athlete exercises self-control in all things. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. Lots of discipline for athletes, right? What you eat, your training schedule, your sleep schedule, your clicks and your beeps on your watch, uh, all of those things. You run and train and, and pace and eat and sleep. Your whole life is upended, and we, you know that as athletes. However, Paul, Paul knows that we say as Christians, if we use that athlete for a Christian walk, we have to say yes to things that we want to say no to, and we say no to things that we want to say yes to. Yes to go to the gym, no for that 14th slice of pie. So we have to like do things we don't want to do in order for a bigger goal. The second focus in this verse here is, I do not box as one beating the air. And so in self-control, moving from running to boxing, as Paul is preparing for this fight in the arena, he doesn't go in there and just box hitting the air like the Star Wars kid with the golf club in the video. Uh, he doesn't do that. But every punch that the boxer has is planned and measured and planted. Everything is intentional. It's discipline and it's self-control. Why? Because the boxer knows that when he's in that arena, if he's ill-prepared 
and if he just messed around this whole time, the athlete could be disqualified, or he could lose or get hurt. And that gives the athlete, and should be the Christian, drive and purpose. And then why do we do all this? The third little section, as Paul tells us, so we run, so run, so that we may obtain the prize. In the Isthmian Games, the prize is a reef made of laurel or pine. It probably, I don't know what you do with this. You hang it for a while. I don't know. You dry it out, hang it upside down, bring it out every once in a while. It's going to fade in a few weeks. Well, think about what our athletes and our society do for whatever their perishable wreath is, whether that's a, a certificate or a trophy or a scholarship or even a Super Bowl ring. Eventually, all of that, it's not as perishable as a wreath, but it's perishable. And if it doesn't rot with, with rust, the athlete's grandkids are going to sell it on eBay or a pawn shop someday. It's still perishable. So Paul's point is this. If athletes do all of that hard work, all of that training for a big fight that something's going to be destroyed, shouldn't we as Christians who are, we are in line for crowns and rewards for our Christian faith, shouldn't we do so much more than what they do, at least as much as they do? How about us? Are we making clear and measured intentional steps in our faith? 10 years from now, 20, 30, 10 years from now, what will we wish we have done spiritually today? Like looking back 10 years, what are you going to say? Man, I wish I went to Bible study more. I wish I memorized scripture. I wish I, wish I, wish I. Verse 27 says this, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. The literal meaning is I pummel my body and make it my slave. And so Paul is in this arena pummeling his own body. And I'm not talking about for the forgiveness of sin. Jesus has done that. But he pummels his own body. He beats himself up with, to put his body under control so that he can do these steps 10 years from now that he'll be a more solid, mature Christian. And we, you know, a couple of examples that I see this in our own community. I said this in first service, and I'll say it again because it's worth saying, but the Simbergers came to Okinawa for one purpose, and that is to minister to Japanese-speaking people. And that became their one mission. So if that's the purpose, if that's the prize, then every bit of training is going to have to surround that prize. John and Melissa both quickly jumped into Japanese language, and according to Satomi, they're okay. So, uh, <laughs> so they're, they're making steps further. But right there, that right there is an example of self-control. John and Melissa probably wanted to do all this other stuff that's way more fun than studying, but they have their eye on the prize to be able to pursue something. And then Zach Dougherty, you heard him earlier today. Zach Dougherty is just a model of how scripture memorization is important to the Christian life. And if you know Zach at all, in fact, you've even seen it already, uh, is that scripture pours out of him. And I don't know, Zach, where are you? How many verses do you know? I mean, even a ballpark it? A few. Yeah, okay. <laughs> 50? Over? Okay, yeah, see, look at that. Just enough with the humility. But uh, Zach Dougherty <laughs> has said yes to things that he wanted to say no to and no to things that he wanted to say yes to to buffet his body to put Scripture in there. And the result is now, when you talk to Zach, he can't help it not in a showy-off way at all, but he can't help it. It's part of him. That's something that takes work and effort. Spiritual growth does not happen in some kind of empty vacuum. Like 10 years from now, it's not going to be like, oh my gosh, I know 100 verses. 
I can speak Japanese. It's not the matrix, right? It's like it takes work. It takes the intensity and the self-control of an Olympic runner or Olympic boxer to be able to get us where we want to be. Unfortunately, this, as Paul says, is, could be in our way. Our lack of self-control in whatever that means. We don't buffet our body because we don't value the prize in front of us. We dum-de-dum-dum go along our Christian walk and, you know, I'll attend something if it's not too out of my way. We're talking about, not talking about lack of self-control and anger and alcohol and, and sexual temptation. All of those things are another conversation. But we lack self-control because we forget what the prize is. We forget that we are battling for the souls of others and even the souls of us. And this is an important thing. Imagine what this would look like here at Pillar if all of us took Paul's words to heart and imagine what it would look like if we were able to put aside our own preferences for the good of others, to reach out and build bridges, whether they're first-time visitors here as Christians or whether they're somebody who's just disconnected in our shop or in our community outside on base. But if we took steps to build a bridge and not be the stumbling block, what that would do to our community here in Okinawa. If we took seriously the need for Christian training and to memorize things and to read things and to commit to be in accountability groups, to be in fight clubs, and now fight club has a good meaning, doesn't it, with this arena idea, to, to be in fight clubs and MCs, all of this, imagine what that could do to a community like ours. What would it do in your family alone if you committed to this? What would this do in your workplace? What would this do in our church in Okinawa wide? Well, this self-sacrificing and self-control, those two areas that Paul talked about in this section, are really important and really hard to do. But fortunately, we have a better model than Paul, better than Hudson Taylor. We have Jesus. Jesus did not ask us to do what he did not. All things to all people is something that Jesus did and did well. Jesus became a man to build a bridge from rebel sinners to God the Father. Jesus was the ultimate all things to all people. Philippians, Paul tells us this. In Philippians 2, he says that Jesus emptied himself of all his rights that he had. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. All things to all people, self-sacrificing, self-control. Jesus is our model because he made a way from rebellious man to the Father by laying down what was due him, what his rights are. He put aside his rights for you. If Jesus can do that, can't we do the same? Let's return to this great quotation about the man in the arena. When Paul tells us to give up our freedom and cross bridges for the sake of others, by being all things to all people, or to give up some comforts so that we can run as to obtain the prize, we can do it not because we are strong and we just need to fight harder and pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We can get in there and fight, learn more tricks, more, learn more moves in the arena. No, we're going to be victorious because somebody has entered that arena on our behalf before us. Jesus is in the middle of that arena fighting what he did, fighting on our behalf. The fight is his and it's not ours. Jesus is the one who has this dust and sweat and blood on his face for our good. Because of Jesus's work and his victory in the arena, that gives me freedom 
to serve you. I'm not bound to serve you under law. I'm serving you because God in heaven has already served me. Because of that, it makes the heavenly prize running toward it, makes that easy to do. Serving you and putting aside my wants and desires makes it easy to do. We can be victorious in the arena, whatever arena God has given us in our sphere of influences, we can be victorious because Jesus has already won. I'm going to have Zach Dougherty come up here now, and he's going to lead us in a confession about how we respond to this. Thanks, Zach. 